There's a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God at all. And? Song of Songs. Indeed. Thanks, Derek. Song of Songs. And it begins with, in, in the Hebrew, a statement word. Kiss me. That's how it begins. This morning I want to talk about intimacy. And essentially, I'm going to be talking about erotic love poetry. Because that's what we've got here. Uh, yep. <laughs> because who we love is one of the fundamental questions of life. And how we love is the essence of what it looks like to love. So it's, it's enormously important. And so love and romance and sex is part of what God has created us for. It's part of his purpose and plan for us. At the end of uh, chapter 1 in Genesis, it says, And it was morning and evening on the sixth day. And God looked at everything that he had made, and he says, this is very good. And all the good things that God has created have been in some measure corrupted, because we have this capacity to mess things up in the most remarkable way. But because that's happened, doesn't mean that we need to shy away from dealing with the way that God has created us to be. What we were created for. I'm going to read in a, in a second from Song of Songs, but let me stop for a second to tell you about something, a little bit of background in terms of it. There, there are so many things that we want. We want new things most of the time. I have a book on my shelf called Ancient Future Faith. And there's that paradox of the ancient and the future with faith as the, the pivot there are some things in terms of wisdom that are always going to be about wisdom and about God. That there has been an accumulation over centuries and millennia of what it means to worship and serve God and what His purposes are for us. Novelty is not what we're talking about here. And early on, the, in Hebrew tradition, they understood that there were certain books in the Bible that were neglected. Now, I know if I had to ask you, because I've done this exercise in some of our small groups, pitch up with one of your favorite passages. And I have several. I mean, there's plenty that you can immediately think of. Um, Psalm 40 for me, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he leaned towards me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry clay and set my feet on a rock. Powerful verse. But if we are not, in some ways, forced to look at the things that we, we skirt around, then we end up never actually looking at or reading or addressing some of the issues that God is keen to look at. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a, a segment called the Megoroth, which simply means five scrolls. And the five scrolls that form this are Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. 
And yes, Esther doesn't mention God. And they're little books, but they are gems. And we, we skirt over them because we, we land on Isaiah and Luke and Psalms so often. And those are the places that we inhabit. And there's a wonderful thing that's been part of Hebrew tradition for probably 17, 1800 years now. Is that at four festivals and at one, uh, those are the feast days, and one fast day, they read these five scrolls. So that every year people have to address, they have to listen to the wisdom that is encapsulated in these particular gems. And I believe these are, in some ways, foundation stones for what it means to be a person of faith. Song of Songs is read during the Passover. And I asked Britt to read from Exodus 15 because that's the culmination of the whole event of Israel's salvation. How they are liberated from slavery and taken to a place of freedom through the baptism of the Sea of Reeds, Yom Suf in Hebrew. And they come out on the other side and the whole of Israel sings the song of praise. They celebrate the fact that God has uh, defeated his enemies and that they had now the capacity to move towards a life of freedom and promise. Salvation has been both given to them, they've experienced God as Savior, and they have personally experienced that salvation. They stand on the other side of the river. They stand in a place where they have been rescued and they are safe. And into that, this feast known as the Un Feast of Unleavened Bread, where there were all the plagues of Egypt, and the last one was when they slaughtered and sacrificed a lamb, and they took the blood and they, they posted it on the, the door frame and the lintel of their doors. And the angel of death, when he came, passed over, hence the word, pass over. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the imagery for us as Christians has always been that the Eucharist, communion, the breaking of bread, the thing that Jesus institutes as that which is core to who we are in terms of our identity, that we remember when we come together, we remember what he did in terms of his death and resurrection, his body and blood given for us. The same way that the Jews do in terms of the Passover. And I'm not suggesting that we read Song of Songs in its entirety every time we have communion. But it wouldn't be a bad idea. Just on occasion. And I'd like to suggest to you that you find a modern translation. The message is fine. But find a modern translation. There are eight chapters. There are eight... Um, uh, if more than just eight, but they, 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 they're these eight chapters of amazing poetry. And read it in one go as an epic poem. The Passover. And when the Hebrew uh, faithful have Passover and they feast on the unleavened bread, they read Song of Songs in the context of their worship. And yes, today we are going to talk about intimacy. 
We're going to talk about love and romance and sex, but it's all in the context of worship. In terms of the way that we were created, the way we were formed to be, in terms of what God wants. And we have had the agenda set for us by everyone else. For centuries, not just in Victorian England, but for centuries, this book was almost forbidden reading, and only adults and priests read it in the quietness of their studies. In fact, here's a little snippet of, of, of uh, meaningless trivia. In the 16th century, there was a professor, I forget, I can't say his whole Spanish name, but Professor Leon, who was jailed for four years. His crime, he translated the Song of Songs into Spanish. <laughs> we, we don't give these particular passages of Scripture much uh, because there are these juicy, beautiful pieces, these poetic pieces in other places. But I believe that if we don't look at this, we end up with a, a partial picture of what God wants for us. I'm not sure if I... I'm reading from... from this is just a commentary that I have on Song of Songs. Um, 800 pages. Um, and to tell you the truth, I'm really nervous to read this. In, in, um, out loud. <laughs> because what, what's happened, is, and I've read the NIV, the message, the New American, the Revised Standard Version, I've read plenty of translations. Because it is so descriptive and vivid, we translate it in a way that is, it skirts over it. I'm going to edit one or two things as I read here. This is chapter um, what am I reading? I'm reading chapter 5 verse 9. You ravish my mind, my bride. You ravish my mind with one of your eyes, with a single gem of your necklace. How fair your love, my sister, my bride. Sweeter your love than wine, the scent of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drip honey, honey and milk under your tongue. And the scent of your robes is like the scent of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister bride, a pool locked, a fountain sealed. Your belly is like a pomegranate grove. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your curvy thighs like ornaments, crafted by artists' hands. Your belly a rounded crater, may it never lack punch. Your belly a mound of wheat, hedged with lotuses. Your breasts like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck like an ivory tower, your eyes the pools of Heshbon, by the gate of Bat Ramon. Your nose like towering Lebanon, overlooking Damascus. Your head on you like Carmel, 
the locks of your head like purple, a king captive in the tresses. How fair, how pleasant you are, O love, daughter of delights. Your stature resembles the, the palm, your breasts the clusters. Methinks I'll climb the palm, I'll grasp its branches. Let your breasts be like great clusters, and the scent of your breath like apples. If you can get a translation like that, it would be good. But what some of Psalms is saying is that there is there is a place for us to not only acknowledge but to speak and address the issues that are often swept under the carpet. Things that we would like not to have to deal with and we allow those things that have corrupted them to just be as they are. What this book is saying to us and what the fundamental issue is that underlies all of this and as you read it you need to bear this in mind was that learning how to love and learning how to pray are both done in the context of God's love. Everything that we do is done in the context of His love. And what the Song of Songs does is it brings together the whole continuum of our experience. We have been so quick to split off those things that are spiritual. And we say those are the things we should focus on. Forgiveness and love and grace and all those things that are noble and wonderful things. But when it comes to talking about the physical things, our bodies, the way that we use our bodies, and I'm not just talking about the sexual part of us as beings. I'm talking here about the way we exercise, the way we eat, everything that we do in, in terms of our lives is all part of the same continuum of life. Here's what's happened, is that the Hebrew understanding of, of a person, of us as a mensch, in terms of what, how the Germans say it, is that we are a single entity. And all that we are, mind, emotions, our psychology, our bodies, our desires, all that we are, our spirituality, is all part of who we are. It's one thing. There is not some things that are okay to talk about in terms of God and theology and the Bible, and other things that are off limits. Because when God created us, He said, this is very good. It's very good. And the, the fact that the fall has come, sorry, <clears throat> the fact that the fall has come and corrupted so much stuff doesn't mean that we then have to sort of hide in a corner and not talk about these things. Greek thought, as it entered through uh, uh, various channels into the church, there's a passage that Paul quotes in Thessalonians where he says, "May your May you be kept, body, soul, and spirit, until the coming of the Lord. And I remember, uh, Gail will as well, we were at a, a church where, it was before we were married, 
And the guy basically preached for a whole year on body, soul, and spirit. Chopped up everything into neat little segments. and um, Essentially, that's the Greek understanding of man. And, and the Greeks have given us a huge amount of stuff. And a lot of our science and our maths and all the, way, the, the, the foundational things of our society are part of the way that the Greek thinking has made its way into Western thought. But the understanding of the human person, the being that is created, is not split up like that. We are whole in terms of who we are. In Hebrew, there is no distinction between the love of God and the love that is there between a husband and wife. There's one word that is used, whether it's talk, talking about the intimacy that occurs in a marriage or the intimacy that occurs when you are dealing with God in prayer, it's the same word. And even to this day, Jewish people understand that the whole of life is God's domain. That's why sexuality is important and why it is sacred. That's why it's important that we know what we do with our bodies. That's why it's important how we do our relationships with each other. Because there's nothing that is outside the orbit of his care. We tend also not just to do the spirit and body thing. We tend to say there are special things and ordinary things. Somebody who does incredibly large things on a global, uh, international, national scale, we say, wow. We pay almost no credence to the person who is being faithful but is never recognized and never seen. There is no difference as far as God is concerned. Not a jot. The only criteria is, have they been faithful with the gifts that they were given? And have they been faithful with the gifts that they were given? And so what it does is when you read the Song of Songs and you understand that this is all about one sense of a continuum of life. Everything matters. Everything belongs in this sense. Is that there is nothing that is ordinary. Nothing that is mundane. Nothing that is meaningless. That every piece of your life and my life has importance. The hidden bits, the ones that everybody sees, the ones where we do great things, the ones where our prayers are answered, and the ones where they're not. To pick up this story from this morning. Exodus, so we talk about salvation, and the, the, the Exodus is this great act of God where Israel experiences God as Savior, and they experience themselves as those who are saved, and they remember the Passover, and they are defined and shaped by that act of salvation, by their experience of it, not by the politics, not by the military, not by anything other than that environmental issues, but the fact that God has acted. Our lives are shaped by the fact that God has saved us. 
that we have experienced what he's done, and we are shaped so that absolutely every aspect of your life and mine has experienced what it means to be saved. And there is nothing that I can't bring into the presence of God and say, I need help, or what do you do? How do you understand this? And that's what the Song of Songs is about. It's saying, you can read this on different levels, and we, we look at some of the uh, ways it's been interpreted in the past, and there's this kind of devotionalism or um, allegorical kind of preaching where this is the story of something else. Oregon set the tone early on in uh, the first few centuries of Christian life. He had a 12-volume commentary on the Song of Songs in which he looked at it in terms of how it expressed who the church was in relationship to God, how the individual was in terms of the relationship to God, and looked at it from all the, uh, the love poetry from Song of Songs and said, this is how we relate to God. And he set the tone for a large, a large portion of the next 1800 years. Bernard of Clairvaux spent 86 sermons on the first two chapters of Song of Songs. So you guys have got a way to go. It's just one today. 86 sermons, all taking each aspect of the first two chapters, which is really literally uh, not even a full page in my Bible, and teasing out every detail in terms of how God relates to his people. And so what's happened is the, um, the sense of, of salvation has been, it's only on this scale out there. We take what is clearly there and we make it into something else. And we end up not dealing with the nitty-gritty of our lives. God is present. God is personal. And when we read this, we are reading something in terms of how we are made. Not only in terms of our relationship to God, but how I am in relation to Gail, and how I am in relation to all other human beings, as well as to myself. We have a tendency to get stale. Revelation 2 verse 4 talks about the church of Ephesus. Now we read Ephesus, the book, Ephesians, the book that Paul wrote, and we think, what a church. But the words to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2 are simply this, that <clears throat> I know what you've done. You've lost your first love. And when we read from the Song of Songs, it's a, prov a provocation, if you like, to again get to a place where we are able to resurrect, re-inject a sense of passion into our love. There was lots of stuff I was going to say this morning, which perhaps I'll say on another occasion. 
What I really would like you to do is to go and read some songs. Find an hour, half an hour, and just read with clarity what this is all about. And don't get just a little aside in terms of helping you to read. With the, with the metaphors that I read to you just a few minutes ago, don't worry about the fact that it's talking about palms and uh, stuff that, that are outside of our frame of reference. Try to get a sense of, of what the, the lover is saying to his loved one in terms of the expression of love that is there. Just a quick aside, not all the time in Song of Songs is intimacy just, does it happen like that? In chapter 3, there is, a, there is an extended passage where the, 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 the lover looks for her, the loved one looks for her lover, and there is a sense of longing and looking and finding. In chapter 6, there is the exact opposite, where there is longing and looking and unrequited love, where there is a sense of it not being fulfilled in that particular way. And essentially what the Song of Songs does for us is it says this, that all intimacy, whether it's with your partner or whether it's with uh, God himself, is difficult. It requires a pursuing... And those, both those passages in chapter 3 and chapter 5, or chapter, chapter 6, both talk about the looking and longing and the, the pursuit of the loved one. And what we understand is that intimacy doesn't always end up with ecstasy. Sometimes there is doubt. Sometimes there is uh, loss. Sometimes there is stuff that are, that, are, that are difficult. And most of the great writings of the church's history have talked about the dark night. Even when Jesus is resurrected, some of the disciples, it says, and they doubted. There is not always just automatic fulfillment and a sense of marvelous presence and beautiful feelings. What the writer of this does is that he uses the Song of Songs as a parable for prayer. And so here's the challenge. Read the Song of Songs for what it is. It is erotic love poetry. Read it in terms of what it says to us about the wholeness of life and all that we are and who we are as human beings. That everything is important. That there is nothing that is ordinary or mundane or not useful or not important. But read it also like this, that it is a parable for you and I of our life of prayer with God. So that everything is held together, both in terms of our humanity and our spirituality, whether it's coming together at worship, around the table and remembering like Israel at the Passover, or whether it's on our own, somewhere quiet. All of life is important. And that's what the Song of Songs, more than anything, teaches us. Time's running out, but let me just say quickly, 
When Jesus comes at the end of his life, and he knows, he said that he's going to um, Jerusalem to die. He's told his disciples in no uncertain terms on a number of occasions. John spends an enormous amount of time on that last passage where they eat the meal together. And they would have celebrated the same Passover meal that the Jews have celebrated since their release from Egypt all those years ago. Where they remembered the salvation of God. And there as the disciples around the table with Jesus, as they celebrated the Passover together, and they rehearsed God's salvation. What does Jesus do? Chapter 14 to 16 is this extended conversation. This place where he starts to speak to them about how it is that he has been intimate with his Father. That he and the Father are one. That everything the Father has said and done, he's done it. He's reiterated that over and over again. And then he says, you're also being brought into this now. This is how it's going to be for you. And how does he end up with that? In chapter 17 is what's known in most commentaries as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where he prays for them. And he prays all the things that he has spoken. He prays for them that they may also be one as he is one, that they may have intimacy with God, that there may be a union and an ecstasy that they have with God, just as he has that sense of oneness with God. In Hebrew, to know God, the word know is the same word that is used. They don't have a distinction between knowing God and knowing your husband or wife. Knowing is the word that the Hebrews use for sexual union, that intimacy, that most, most vulnerable and precious place that is bound into the relationship. And Jesus is saying, you guys have got that with your father now. It doesn't happen automatically. As those of you who are married well know. You have to give yourself to the other. You have to pursue you have to care. You have to love with your whole being. And I think sometimes we don't experience either the joys of that intimacy in our relationships because we hold ourselves back. Sexually, in our marriages, in other relationships because we are vulnerable and we don't want to be hurt for whatever reason. And also with God. And we think it's his, his job to make sure that we experience what we want to experience. And he's saying, there are two parties in this relationship. And that's what the Song of Songs is about. You have to pull the trigger. You have to pull back and let go before the ball hits the machine. And yes, it will ping around all over the place. And a lot of the time, 
the lights will go on and you'll get all excited and it'll be absolutely marvelous. But there are times when it doesn't. But you still pull another one and another one and another one. Until you breathe your last breath, you keep moving forward. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to create such a beautiful, intricate world. The colors and the sounds and the textures and the smells, the sensations. There is just so much that we, we have become dulled in so many different ways. And we come to you this morning to just say, Father, renew in us a sense of expectancy and pleasure and joy. That we may find not only in our relationship with you, but in all of our relationships, a new sense of energy and life, a brightness, a lightness, a softness that we have not experienced for a while. For those people and for those places and for those times where our love has grown cold, we say, Lord, forgive us, please. We are sorry. And we want to be re-energized by your Spirit this morning. Rest on us, anoint us in a fresh way, to be your people. That we can bring a breath of fresh air into the lives that we touch this week. For we ask it in your name.